You are listening to Uncommentary. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Uncommentary. Uh, thanks for joining me. This is kind of a semi-live as we have done before, and um, this is uh, following the heinous death of Mr. George Floyd in Minneapolis and the subsequent rioting that's taking place there. But it's also uh, related to uh, the death of Breonna Taylor, who kind of got overlooked in the uh, Ahmaud Arbery um, news uh, several weeks ago. And so we want to talk about some of that today. I'm really, really happy to have Catherine Freeman and Barnabas Piper joining me today. This is actually the first multi-person uh, three person or more conversation that I've had since I started on commentary. So Catherine and Barnabas, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. This is great. Um, Catherine, let's start with you. Uh, cause I don't know that you've published as many books as Barnabas has, so you might not be quite as household a name. So, um, tell everybody who my Twitter friend, Catherine Freeman is. Yeah. So, um, I live in Austin, Texas. I am right now a seminary student, um, at Truett Seminary, Baylor University Seminary. Um, I also co-host a podcast called Melanated Faith. And then I write a lot kind of at the intersection of, um, pop culture, politics, and faith. Awesome. And Barnabas Piper. Yeah, I'm a, uh, probably best known for being a former co-worker of Marty's uh, in, in years past, um, but, but neither of us work at that particular place anymore. I, true. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on staff at Emmanuel Nashville now. I help lead our small group and discipleship ministry. Uh, I've authored a few books, um, co-host a podcast called The Happy Rant, where we don't talk about things as serious as we're talking about on this podcast. Which uh, so I'm I'm particularly glad that you asked Marty just to have a chance to to spend some time talking through really hard, heartbreaking things and complicated things as well. Um, so uh, earlier this week, I guess it was uh, Corona time has me all uh, mixed up. The video uh, was released from a bystander uh, in an area of Minneapolis where um, a man named George Floyd was killed by a police officer uh, as he was um, being accused or held uh, after being accused of uh, some passing a, a fake $20 bill or something like that, I think is what it was. Um, and condemnation uh, immediately, and not just from, I guess, what you'd consider the usual suspects, um, liberals and civil libertarians, but uh, police chiefs, uh, police chiefs organizations, uh, lots of people uh, condemning the action, um, but this is not unusual, unfortunately. Catherine, what what do you feel? What goes through your mind? What are your reactions? Whether it's Breonna Taylor or uh, whether it's um, George Floyd, um, when you see this happen, you've written about some of this and you react on Twitter. Uh, wh- what are your what are you thinking? What's going through your head and your heart? Um, yeah, so I think like. So I'll start with um, George Floyd. I don't watch the videos anymore. I think um, there has come a time, like, I think, you know, maybe it was after seeing, like, Walter Scott get mm-hmm. shot in his back as he's fleeing police. It just, at a certain point, I think, um, for me, I feel like it's diminishing returns. And I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't really need a video to know that um, African Americans experience disparate treatment. Um, by the police, whether that's just in the form of, you know, being murdered or if it's in the form of just excessive force. 
excuse me, or like racial profiling. I mean, I know from my own personal kind of lived experience um, and the experience of um, brothers and other sisters that like it does happen. Um, so I think that like um, it, that is what comes to mind. I think those videos are like traumatizing. And in some senses, I feel like dehumanizing. And it's just like seeing that image of him, you know, that even that accompanied news stories on the ground and um mm you know, struggling to breathe. And then I think with Breonna Taylor, I think the thing that's like upsetting to me about her, her murder in particular is that here is a woman, I think I, I read an article um, where her mom was like, I've been so worried about her catching the coronavirus because she's an EMT. She's an yeah. essential worker. She hadn't had any time off. And so my, you know, her mother is just like, this is the thing that had been on my mind. It never occurred to me that like she'd be killed in her own home by the police. Yeah. And I think that's like, so, um, I think apropos of, I think how we think about these kinds of violent acts against black women is it's like, I think, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the meta narrative that gets told is like, yes, black men are in danger by the police, but I think we kind of diminish, um, or it often goes unheard or, or comment upon commented upon when it's, it's black women. And I just, you know, just heartbreaking for her. And then her boyfriend who thought, you know, someone is trying to kill us and is a licensed gun owner. And it's like yeah. acting to defend his home and his girlfriend. And just that they're both like immense, immense tragedies. Mm. Barnabas, you're from the area. Uh, did this surprise you? Um, I mean, the Philando Castile killing was, uh, two or three years ago in, in Minnesota, um, there was a situation uh, last year, I believe, where a lady called 911 on a suspected burglar, I think, and uh, the policeman arrived and, and shot her as she was trying to come down to meet them to talk about it. Um, is this Was this normative in your experience growing up? Yeah, so I mean, I, I grew up just a couple miles from where uh, George Floyd was killed. It's very close to the high school I went to, and the area where all the rioting is now is it's kind of like the main, kind of a main east-west thoroughfare through South Minneapolis where mm. we did, you know, did a lot of our shopping and hanging out and dining and everything. Um, so that it, the area f is really familiar. The experience of what we're seeing now feels really foreign to me. And it just makes me wonder what I missed about mm. the, the growing up experience of my black friends um, yeah. because they may have an entirely different answer than I do that that this is not unexpected for them uh that this is this is something they have experienced and seen and i you know when when philando castile was murdered um in 2017 i wrote just about how striking it is the different the different upbringings that we had we grew up three or four miles apart just across the mississippi river from each other same age um and, you know, could have been teammates or classmates or anything if we just, you know, lived in different zip codes. Mm -hmm. And, and I never was afraid for what he experienced. And I remember experiences where my, like my high school football teammates would have me drive when we would all kind of carpool places because the cops didn't pull over white kids. Mm. Um, but their experience was that it was, it was normal to just be pulled over in certain neighborhoods for driving a beat up Honda as a black guy. And, and so it didn't feel normal to me at all, but you just sort of look at the pattern and you go, yeah, there's, there's something amiss in the policing of the twin cities. There's something, 
there's something deep rooted there that's not as it should be because there is a pattern there. And there've been other incidents as well. Um, when there were protests after, um, the incidents in Ferguson and Baltimore, for example, Mm -hmm. there were, there were protests in Minneapolis and those were responded to pretty badly by the police. So it's personally surprising, but sort of, if you take a step back and look at it collectively, it seems like this probably should have been expected, sadly. Yeah. Catherine, is it surprising at all to hear, uh, people of the Caucasian persuasion saying things like this never happened to me, or I don't, I, I can't identify easily with, with what, uh, these folks have experienced or is it more denial or just a, an unawareness or is it changing? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's not surprising. I mean, I think that if you've not had that experience, I mean, I think it's hard to, you know, if you've not, um, one, if you don't train your own eyes to see, um, just the sort of your own experience as a Caucasian person in America is very different. I wouldn't be surprised, um, if you, this seems foreign to you, um, just because I know, you know, it's just like a totally different experience. Um, but I would say, I mean, to the extent that you have friends of color or, um, have relationships with people that are different from you. I mean, I think a big part of being a friend with someone is like knowing them and them feeling fully known by you. And Mm -hmm. so I would say if you're a person that says, you know, I have black friends and this still feels foreign to you, that's a little bit more concerning to me (laughs) Um, just because it's like, well, what do you guys talk about? You know, and and like for me personally, I mean, I have a very diverse, have always had a very diverse friend group. And I just feel like, um, if I, I, and I think my white friends would say this, like if we've never talked about race, then we're not really friends. Cause that's a big part of who I am and my experience and how I experience the world. And, you know, I don't think it's like, um, an identity politics issue. I mean, I think God was like intentional in making me a black woman. And so mm-hmm. there's like a specific set of experiences that go with that. And so, um, I would say, yeah, it would be more concerning or alarmed if you are someone who does ministry in, you know, communities of color or has relationships or friends, because I just, you know, I just, I personally don't know a black person that could say that them or someone they know or in their family has not had some sort of harrowing run in with law enforcement. See, that is the most bizarre thing for a white dude to hear like me. I mean, I've, I've lived in the suburbs my entire life from the time that I have a memory, uh, I lived in the suburbs and the few times that I've had encounters with the police have all been, you know, TV style, walk up, can I see your license and registration, sir, you were going too fast or sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Um, you know, just like a training video. I mean, I have, I even had a police officer one time, which I was grateful for this, pulled me over, stopped me for speeding, uh, wrote me a warning, and let me go on my way. And the next week I saw him in the exact same spot with a speed trap again. And I was coming from the other direction and I pulled over and I said, Hey man, you catching anybody? And he's just like, wah, wah, wah. And I said, yeah, you pulled me over last week right here. And he said, I didn't give you a ticket, did I? And I was like, are you serious? I mean, you're like going to apologize to me if you gave me a ticket. And I just drove away thinking I can't even fathom what, People that I worked with that I had talked to at the time and their experiences with the police were so drastically different. Uh, Barnabas, I know you've had some 
conversations with some guys that have um, uh, led you to realize some of your uh, some of the different experiences that you had. When did you kind of start uh, having an awakening, or as Catherine said, having your eyes open to some of the differentials? Yeah, I think it it's only been probably in the last seven, eight years that I really began to understand. And when I say, and I, I mean, began to understand, mm-hmm. I don't want to claim more knowledge than I have the, the tension and the difficulty for the African-American community with police. Um, growing up, you know, grew up in a, in a really multi-ethnic neighborhood. I have my younger sister's African-American adopted when I was 12 and, you know, so grew up in a context where, where race was a just kind of in our faces. And so we talked about it often and talked about the beauty of it and the differences and how, as Catherine mentioned, God's design in it. So I I grew up with a really positive awareness in that sense, but it wasn't until I started talking parenting with black people that Mm -hmm. I began to realize the fear that black parents have for their children and, and the, um, which is so different than how I was raised. Mm-hmm. It, my parents taught me that the police, the police are there to protect and serve, like it says on the car, and and we can trust them. So there was sort of a positivity about police presence in my mind. And when I talk to the black parents that I'm friends with now and that I know, that's not the sense at all. There's a sense mm-hmm. of of ten, you know being tentative at best sometimes abject fear and then just uncertainty because of because of the the potential terrible outcomes and so it's been i think that the parenting aspect has brought out um an awareness in me that i never had previously just because again i i had experiences where the cops would stop me at two o'clock in the morning in a neighborhood and just sort of kind of friendly say we're just just kind of checking to make sure everything's okay whereas I think if, if my skin shade was darker, it would have been a different outcome. And, and so I never feared the police, but now as a parent, I have to put myself in the shoes of black coworkers, black friends who are, who have an entirely different perspective and interaction. Catherine, yeah, do, can I just um, say, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say one thing to that extent of like, I remember. So when I was in high school, when my brother started driving, um, that there were a couple, and we, I grew up in the suburbs, um, both of my parents are, you know, professionals, college educated. And so this is the thing that's crazy about this is that it's across socioeconomic um, boundaries within the African-American community. So when my brother first started driving and just in the contrast, um, he got pulled over in our neighborhood a couple times, maybe within the first couple months of him um, driving for all kinds of like ticky tack stuff. And I will not, you know, I love my brother, but when he was a teenager, he was not the best driver, but <laughs> my parents were very concerned. And so I remember that my mom and my dad went with my brother to the local police station and were like, he lives in this neighborhood. This is his car. They gave him the license plate so that they knew like, because my, I think my parents felt like it's not the driving that's why he's being pulled over. It's because yeah. he's a young black man in this yeah. sort of upper middle class neighborhood and they think he does not belong here. Mm-hmm. And so my, you know, having to like my mom having to have a conversation 
with the, you know, whoever was in charge of like the patrol station in our area and like making sure that the officer that was driving around our neighborhood knew that like my brother belonged here. And I just remember being like so struck by that because I was like, I, none of my other friends of any race, I feel like I know that their parents <laughs> took their brother, you know, had to do that to ensure, um, you know, a, a child's safety just for coming home from school. Um, is there a name for that in black families? Is, is that conversation or that training about how to respond and how to act when you go to a store and not putting your hands in your pockets and those things that I've read so many people talk about, is it called like, you know, if you're going to, if your parents are telling you about, uh, if your parents are telling you about, you know, sex for the first time, then, you know, it's the birds and the bees or something like that. Is there a name in the black community for that conversation that takes place? Or is it just like, so part of life that it's just not anything unusual yeah i think we call it have you know we call it the talk of like this is Mm -hmm. how you act um when you are um pulled over by the police and i think so i think you know the version i remember in college my parents telling me like if because i went to texas a&m which is it was more rural at the time now it's kind of more Mm -hmm. of like a suburb of houston but like to call 911 and say, I see the officer behind me, but wait till I got into a more lit or more populated area. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because, you know, the idea, like, it's just not safe being a, like a woman and being pulled over at night, but then also on top of that being African-American. And so I think there are versions of this conversation that most African-Americans or Black people have gotten um, throughout their, you know, usually about 12 or 13, because I think about that age, particularly for African-American boys, it's about 10, 11, 12, 13 is when they stop seeing you as a child and see you as Mm -hmm. like a man. And Mm -hmm. obviously with like Tamir Rice, I think he was 12. Um, And so, yeah, so I would say about that age for African-American men. And then I felt like I got it from my parents a little bit later. Wow. So let's move on to um, to the issue of the the rioting. Um, Barnabas mentioned, I think Ferguson, or maybe Catherine. It was you that mentioned Ferguson. Um, so after uh, Michael Brown was shot and killed, uh, there was, I think, officially it was called unrest instead of rioting. Um, the Baltimore it happened, um, and it's happened in our lifetimes. It's happened before our lifetimes. And now it's happening in Minneapolis. And of course, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is always quoted as riots are the language of the unheard. And Barnabas, you tweeted something uh, and then posted, I guess, to Facebook maybe uh, recently about don't let the attention diverge from what caused the riots to the riots themselves. That's my paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Um, elaborate on that a little bit and, and what your take is on the rioting versus the murder, the killing that took place uh, of which the riots are a protest. Yeah, I think so when, when everything happened in Ferguson after Michael Brown was shot and killed, and then there was the call it unrest, call it, I mean, it was, it was rioting. Um, what, what I saw then that seems to have become a pattern, it, it was probably a pattern before that. And I just didn't, I just didn't notice it, but um was that when the rioting starts, the narrative and the narrative emphasis becomes to look at all the, you know, the quote unquote thugs and sort of there's, there's that coded loaded language mm-hmm. uh, who are causing all this unrest. Look at this terrible response. Look at their disrespect for their community. And, and it's, it's, it seems overtly racially tinged and, and it's just, 
it's not just a red herring because rioting is a real problem, but it is a red herring from the the unarmed innocent person who was killed unnecessarily mm-hmm. and and so uh with with Michael Brown it seemed like there was even more it was just a lot more haggling over details which again was sort of red herring because if you you boil it down did did a man deserve to get shot no right and so so the details are relatively they're not even relative they're, they're utterly insignificant he just didn't deserve to get shot and and then then you get to George Floyd and it's the same thing. So the the rioting becomes it becomes a story because it's bigger, it's bolder, it's louder. And obviously, what's happening in Minneapolis, it's a, you know, it's a four or five mile stretch of a mm. major road that is just being destroyed. The police abandoned a precinct and it is now burnt down. Mm. Um, they, they, there's it's it's kind of an unprecedented thing that's taking your eye off the fact that this was a fuse. <laughs> that was lit by an unjustified, unnecessary, evil killing of an innocent man um, that then sparked legitimate protests of injustice, which then rolled into riots. And so it's, I think it, it just multiplies the, the anger and the devastation because the issue never gets dealt with. The, the, the byproducts of the issue get responded to. Mm. Catherine, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. First, I'm going to ask you uh, to respond to um, what what would your relatives, wh- whether that's your mom and dad, your aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, what would be their take on the rioting? Is it monolithic or is it splintered, just like it would be uh, among some white folks? And then second, I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball and tell me what you think would have happened if at the moment those police officers were fired, the one who had done the killing was arrested at the same moment. And it was announced at the same moment that the other three were being investigated for their role. And if they should be also charged, would a riot have ensued? So I want to ask you to take both of those. Yeah. um, So I will say as an elder's daughter, uh, my dad, I don't think that anyone would be in support of, rioting. I think where we probably most of us would land is that the, um, or destruction of property, I think where we would land would probably be along the, but the underlying issue is that, and and probably, you know, not just in Minnesota, but it's the issue in Louisville, it's the issue, you know, in Ahmaud Arbery's case, is feeling like as a Black person at any given time, a white person or a police officer can decide to take your life and there's no recourse. And so when you've been shown images um, or videos of this happening over and over again, and you've tried quoting Dr. King and you've tried peaceful protests and you've tried voting and you've tried, you know, I mean, the thing that's like so crazy about this is, you know, Christianity Today did an article about George Floyd as a person of peace Mm -hmm. in Houston and the third ward in his community as someone who tried to mentor young people and let them know that violence and gang violence was not a solution. He encouraged people to become Christians and go to, you know, so I think, and what's crazy about it is I just, I so much feel in my spirit that if he had lived, he would have been on the streets trying to calm people down and say like, this isn't the proper way to get what you want. But of course we don't have his voice because he was murdered. But I think that, you know, that the issue is it's just, it's like a powder keg. Like you've just been, 
you who have been told in so many different ways, both in spoken ways and unspoken ways, that your life is not worth as much. And you feel like this is the only way to be heard. And I think, you know, the frustration is and then it you know, this morning it was announced that the officer was arrested um, and that they're investigating the other three who were present. And so the my concern or you know the tension is now you're you're seeing like okay the way to get results is to result to mm. you know violence or property destruction or setting things on fire because when we were just in the streets four days ago um, marching with signs and peacefully protesting there was nothing we were met with the DA saying that there was more evidence the larger context of it yeah. didn't support charges the police officer. Um, and so I think that, you know, I worry about that being the, the takeaway. And I, I feel like it's hard, I think, especially in this circumstance for, I understand people that being their takeaway, like the way to get what we want. The only language people seem to understand is like the destruction of property um, and setting fires. And so, you know, I, I if I were in charge in Minnesota or Minneapolis, I'd be very concerned um, about that going forward. And then I would say, you know, my crystal ball, do I think that this would be happening? Um, do I think that there would have been, you know, in Louisville, you know, last night as well, they were protesting Breonna Taylor and shots rang out and it kind of got, um, there was, um, some jostling and more aggressive, I guess, senses of protest. Um, do I think that any of those things would be happening if people could trust that law enforcement and local DAs when these things would happen would announce arrest and announce investigations? No, I do not. I think the reason why these protests and the rioting happens is because oftentimes that's what it takes. I mean, the DA himself said, you know, this is the fastest this has ever been done because it was four days and every other instance of a police shooting in that area. Um, I think Justine, I can't think of her last name, but it, you know, it was like eight months, nine months a year. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, I think you see that enough and you just, I think you can't take it. And that's not a justification in saying that I like support that, but I understand that just feeling of like helplessness of like everything has been taken and no one seems to care. And like, I don't know a language to get you to understand or to see our suffering other than this. See, that is, uh, I think that's a key component. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's the inability of a lot of white people to see and empathize with, uh, the plight of so many black Americans, um, because we're segregated often by living space. Um, one of my friends that, uh, Barnabas, you would know him from our previous employer. He worked uh, in the mail delivery and facilities mm-hmm. area, um, had worked for our, that company for like 30 years, lived, I don't know, five miles away or something like that. But he lived in uh, a predominantly black area. And he told me, he said, you know, I'm late to work sometimes because I drive a new truck and I get stopped on my way to work. Uh, another guy said the same things. Boss wanted to know, why are you late? Well, I got stopped by the police. Well, what'd you do? Well, I didn't do anything. It's where I live. Uh, I mean, there's so little, um, you use the term lived experience. There's so little lived experience in most white people's lives in America that is in any way relatable to that, uh, experience that, that you've had, uh, Barnabas, do you have any particular question that's popped into your mind for Catherine? Um, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like this whole conversation is a big question for, for a white person who cares uh, mm. and who wants to get better at, at understanding and at advocating 
And so I guess without putting Catherine in the position of speaking for all black people, what, what is something that white people who care can do that encourages you in terms of, in terms of advocacy, in terms of, uh, relationship question, like what are the things that are, that we can do that, that speak, that speak to you personally, uh, as opposed to, you know, trying to, trying to throw a blanket on it. Um, that would be encouraging. That would, that would show a level of, of, um, community and solidarity in, in experiences that, you know, we haven't shared necessarily. Um, I think for me personally, what I find really encouraging is my friends that have, you know, obviously, you know, asked me questions or, you know, even sending text messages of like, oh, I see what's happening. Um, but also beyond that have kind of done their own work um, and are like, you know, reading books. And I have, you know, my best friend has like now organizing is organizing a book club around um, Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge to racial unity. And so that I think is really encouraging. And then I think the other thing is really encouraging for me personally is when I see people kind of take the next step beyond sort of um, expressing outrage on social media um, that, you know, they're showing up at city council member meetings and asking, you know, what's our neighborhood use of what's our community's use of force policy and what, you know, what are the statistics around who's getting stopped, you know, in this community by the police? And then, you know, what kind of training are the police getting, you know, and then holding people accountable, right? So the district attorney is an elected position, city councils, which are often the bosses or supervisors of police officers and police departments are um, elected positions and, and, and really giving attention to in their votes, um, judges, DA, city council, people, um, who contribute, who are either positively contributing or negatively contributing to the problem, mm-hmm. um, I think is encouraging. And then I would say, you know, to something you said earlier, I think it's really encouraging when I see people who see the, you know, property destruction and are alarmed, but kind of push past that discomfort to try to really understand what would push someone um, to resort to this and you know not in a way that like celebrates um that behavior but just because i think oftentimes the 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 narrative is yeah that the property damage is used as a reason to kind of tune out all the other things that are being said and so i think kind of leaning into the discomfort to really listen beyond the the fires and um the target lamps was really encouraging yeah, thank you. That's that's really helpful. Um, specifically for me, the part about engaging local politics more—that's mm-hmm. not something I've done with with consistency. Um, so, yeah, thank you for thank you for that. That's I I appreciate having practical steps to take in this because I perpetually feel like you know like there's more to be done and like I'm I'm not up to speed and not doing enough. So that's really helpful. Thank you. Can I give one other encouragement and just generally, I think this applies across people and seeing these things happening and feeling that same sense of overwhelming. Um, Two things, like don't let the fear of not doing it perfectly keep you from doing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. two, don't let the size of the problem also keep you from not doing anything, right? Like it has taken years and generations for us to get to this place. And so one, the idea that any one thing or one person, or even I wonder one generation is going to Hmm. totally solve the problem. I think in, in some ways 
unrealistic and causes people to become hopeless and paralyzed. So I would say, I always say, start small with your own community or your own neighborhood. And I also say, start with prayer. Cause like some things, you know, God has just not called you to, you know, with, you know, time, equipment, resources, you just don't have it. But what is the one, one step you can take towards being a person of peace, a person of justice. And so, you know, those would be my other two sort of more spiritual <laughs> um, advice. And then, you know, how do you get to your practical steps? Um, so what are some book recommendations? Uh, so let me say one thing. And Catherine kind of alluded to this when she talked about conversations. Um, if, if you're listening and you're um, a white person in your 40s or 50s and you don't have a single black friend that you've ever sat down across the table from and just ask an open ended question like, tell me about growing up or tell me what you feel when you see these uh, killings on the news and let them open up to you. It is, let me tell you, revelatory uh, to have those conversations. And I would strongly encourage you uh, to begin to have conversations with folks who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't have the, who don't share the same upbringing that you had, um, especially people who are from different races uh, and socioeconomic areas. Um, Barnabas book recommendation. Um, so I think if, if for, for people who haven't read anything in on, on this going to one of the greatest voices on, on the issue of civil rights and race. So just really short, there's a small volume that has letter from a Birmingham jail and the, I have a dream speech in its, in its entirety, not just Mm -hmm. the part that is most popular um, by Martin Luther King jr. is a really good place to start. It's a short read, but just summarizes so well, the, the cost of apathy and the cost of maintaining the status quo for the white majority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a handful of others, um, the warmth of other sons is a really, really good one for telling the stories of, um, I mean, you, you asked, you, you mentioned Marty sort of asking the question, like what was growing up? Like that's sort of what this book does is what was growing yeah. up? Like what, or what was, what was it like for your mother, your grandmother? Um, and again, profoundly eye-opening for me to see the stories of black people specifically moving from the South to the North and what that was like. Um, and then one that, I, that I've that i been working through slowly just because it's, it's, it's heavy is called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's looking at the, the white church's complicity in kind of supporting racism historically in the United States. And uh, as somebody who works in church ministry now, um, it's a gut punch, but the kind that's, that feels really necessary as well and, and kind of lays the groundwork for look at, like Catherine mentioned, there, there are generations worth of problem here, so it, the, including in the church. So what do we have to change? What do we have to patiently work at over a lifetime? What about it, Catherine? book recommendations? Yeah, I would say all the books that Barnabas said were great. I think reading um, Dr. King more deeply, um, you know, one of my personal favorites is Where Do We Go From Here Towards Chaos or Community? Um, Just because it's one of his later works, and I feel like it does a really great job of him kind of um, 
uh, it's like a summation of all the arguments he'd been making over the course of his life. Um, and then I, and I think also too, because, you know, he, by the time he wrote that 1967, you're getting into the, the, the violence and the, the riots and Watts and Chicago and lots of other places. So I think it's just a helpful testimony or witness. Um, I personally, I love Be the Bridge um, to Racial Unity. I've already mentioned that one by Latasha Morrison. I also really love um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, because um, I, I think it really does a great job of getting at what Barnabas talked about earlier is like, you know, as a Black parent, like having these conversations um, with your children. And he's just a really eloquent it's writer. It's so poetic, I think, in and heavy and, and, and deep. Um, and then... And I think Jasmine Holmes wrote a similar, but not this, from a more faith um, perspective about identity and hope um, called Mother to Son. And so I would recommend that as well. And then my last one would be um, Austin Channon Brown wrote, um, it's called I'm Still Here. Um, and I think it's called the subtitle is like Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Um, and I, what I really appreciate about Austin's book is that it is as um, an African-American who has primarily been in white evangelical spaces, it is sort of a memoir about that. And so that you can see, I think it's oftentimes when these things happen, um, we think this is not proximate to us, that this is someone else's experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's helpful reading Austin's book because it helps understand in, in within these evangelical spaces, what exactly what the experience is and wh even where people are not, let's say intentionally racist or kind of say, well, I'm colorblind, um, the kinds of harms that can come from that kind of language. And so um, I think it's a, just a really great way to kind of get a peek into what that experience might be like for the African-Americans who um, are in your churches. I'm going <clears> to <throat> recommend three that um, are a little bit of a different take. One is Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. Uh, that demonstrates how even after the Civil War, uh, black Americans in the South especially were subjected to a different kind of slavery uh, by being arrested for trivia, trivial matters and then basically sold into um, debt peonage to uh, companies like United States Steel. Um, and they were re-enslaved and unable to pay their debts. And every time they broke an axe handle, for instance, they would get a, a, another debt that they had to pay off and never could. And so it it just it demonstrates that between the end of the Civil War and basically the beginning of World War II, that there was still in place a system of slavery unofficially in the South uh, that robbed generations of Black Americans of their ability to uh, to grow and prosper. Uh, and then following on that, The Color of Law uh, by Richard Rothstein, uh, which has to do with uh, redlining in our major cities and how Black families were really prohibited from capital accumulation because of where they were not allowed to buy homes. Uh, and then finally, um, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I would recommend that as a follow-on to those two that uh, demonstrates the damage of the war on drugs uh, to the black communities, especially. Sorry, I didn't yes. mean to interrupt you. We're cutting out. But I forgot to recommend Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Both watch oh, yeah. the movie and read his book. I highly recommend very cool. And check out, uh, order these through Hearts and Minds Books, if you don't mind, heartsandmindsbooks.com. Brian Borger, Borger uh, will be happy to give you a 20% discount on the ones that he can get and um, pass those along to you. So, Catherine and Barnabas, thank you so much for being on Uncommentary. Catherine, what's your Twitter handle? At Catherine Annette. At Catherine Annette. And Barnabas, you are? At Barnabas Piper. At Barnabas Piper. Thank you all for being here. 
um, we'll be in prayer that uh, God will bring some resolution and uh, good justice to uh, what's taking place in our nation. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Thank you.